birds being a colonial species, you can drive and drive and drive without seeing a single one. And then all of a sudden, on the horizon, you see what looks like smoke. And that's not smoke that you're looking at. That's a flock of 50,000 or whatever it might be, birds. Hey guys, it's Marshall, and this is All Land is Beautiful. Today we do a deep dive on one of my favorite bird species, the tricolored blackbird. A California endemic species, which means it only lives in our state. If you're not familiar with this bird, you may have wondered what that sound was at the beginning of this episode. Well, it was a tricolored blackbird. Described as a short, high-pitched squeak, or a more muted nasal squeak, the call of the tricolored blackbird is entirely unique and easily recognizable once you've experienced it. Often confused with its counterpart, the red-winged blackbird, besides its distinctive call, the tricolor's red wing patch is complemented by a whitish yellow bar that makes it identifiable by sight. So why are we talking about this bird? Well, on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Meese, a UC Davis biologist who has spent the last almost 20 years studying this threatened bird species, which I feel symbolizes this notion that there's no one-size-fits-all solution to land conservation and wildlife protection especially in California's Central Valley. As we dive in, you'll learn about the historic plight of the tricolored, the cessation of its decline and future success, which embodies a complex of environmental and social issues that neither I or Bob are fully qualified to analyze, but we touch on a number of them. We discuss the tricolored blackbird statewide survey, a collective effort most recently led by Bob which utilizes over 100 volunteers to detect and monitor tricolored numbers across California's Central Valley, Coast Ranges, and Central Coast. The adaptability of the bird species and how it's come to rely extensively on an altered landscape characterized by working lands, agriculture, grazing, and dairies. And we touch on Bob's work with state and federal agencies, nonprofits, and numerous private property owners educating, guiding, and studying the bird, from which he has gained a number of insights documenting patterns of movement across the state. Make sure to take a look at the show notes for this episode. Bob references footage and does a great job of describing the relationship between tricolors and grazing cattle, but it's definitely worth seeing with your own eyes. If I had had my choice of any bird in the world to spend my life with and, and studying, it would have been peregrine falcons. That's not a hard bird to get excited about. Precisely. It's, it's a very easy bird to get excited about. It's considered the world's fastest bird. And when you see them stoop on whatever their prey is, a warbler or whatever it might be, it's easy to believe that it's the world's fastest bird. Yeah. And that then led to graduate work while I was a graduate student under Clayton White at BYU. And mm-hmm. I worked in Greenland for my master's degree with peregrine falcons. Wow. And then I switched gears somewhat. I finished my master's and came to Davis Mm -hmm. to do my PhD. And after finishing my PhD, I was invited to join a new institute called the Information Center for the Environment, or ICE. Mm -hmm. And that's where I worked for my entire, whatever it was, 23-year career at Davis. Mm -hmm. And for more than the first 10 years, I think it was 12 I was in charge of a project that was designed to 
accumulate and standardize and disseminate the biological inventories of the world's protected areas, which wow. is awfully ambitious for myself and a, a, a crew of a couple of part-time assistants. But that's sure. what I did for 12 years, wow. which is wildly successful, really a very, very fun project. And that is the project that then led to my being asked to go by the U.S. State Department overseas two or three times a year and mm. work in Russia. And I did work in India. I have done work in Australia and various places, all as a result of this project where mm -hmm. I was working on the world's protected areas and doing mm. biological inventory work. Then that project slowly started to ramp down and a good friend, colleague of mine named Bill Hamilton mm -hmm. came into my office and I had known Bill because I was a graduate student and working on campus. I'd known Bill for over a decade. We were already good friends and Bill was at the time the world's expert on tricolor blackbirds. Mm. And he came into my office in the fall of 2004. Okay. And he asked me, would you be interested in working with me on tricolor blackbirds? I said, I'd love to. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of dovetailed with the sort of the end of this 12-year project working with the um, biological inventories of the world's protected areas mm -hmm. and starting a whole new project with tricolor blackbirds. So my first field season with tricolor blackbirds was actually in the spring of 2005 and mm -hmm. Bill and I worked together, you know, six or seven days a week for the entire field season. Mm -hmm. And then Bill passed away mm. in April of 2006. So I've okay. been working solo with tricolor blackbirds since April of 2006. Yeah. And so let me stop you right there. Why? Here's where I want to establish the context for why we're even talking about the tricolor blackbird today is so why was there this individual studying tricolored blackbirds and approached you and you know right yet in the, why was there energy and you know and funding to support folks looking at this bird the tricolored blackbird was already known by state and federal agency biologists to be undergoing a very severe population decline mm -hmm. and places where the birds used to be common were essentially vacant. Mm -hmm. There were no birds present. And other places where they were formerly abundant, they were still present, but in much reduced abundance, maybe 10 to 20% of the numbers that had been, you know, decades before. Mm -hmm. So the interest on the part of primarily the state of California, not so much the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but the state of California, was in monitoring the population mm -hmm. and to just keep a handle on how well the birds are doing. Sure. And there was an effort that was started by Bill Hamilton that I've already mentioned and another individual, Ted Beattie, in the 1980s, which mm -hmm. is called the Tricolor Blackbird Statewide Survey. Mm -hmm. So this was an effort that was custom designed to estimate the number of tricolor blackbirds throughout the state of California, which mm -hmm. is incredibly ambitious, right? Yeah. California. Sounds like you're attracted to ambitious uh, efforts. <laughs> California is a big, big state. Yes, it is. So to try to estimate the number of anything mm -hmm. throughout the state of California is, you know, by definition, that's that's a big job. Yeah, that's, that's quite ambitious. So it, we, I think the the important point we missed was um, th there's a reason that there was initiative to be studying the dwindling numbers of tricolor blackbirds because at one point they were once a prolific 
bird species throughout our state. And so could you speak to, you know, speak to the historical numbers that, you know, that were once here? Some biologists believe that it may have been the single most abundant bird species in California. Wow. And work that was done in the late 1920s and early 1930s by a guy by the name of Johnson Neff, who, by the way, worked on the Conaway Ranch here in Yolo County, mm-hmm. that, I've, that I've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, the only place in a state where you can go back into the tricolor blackbird literature and actually see a reference to a place where the birds occurred a century ago. Wow. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And the work that Johnson Neff did was motivated by the sense that the birds might be going extinct mm. way back then mm-hmm. in the 1920s, 1930s. But the reason that his work was so important is because it was focused mm. exclusively on tricolor blackbirds. He was the first biologist, and he worked for the federal government. He was the first biologist to actually specialize, if you will, mm. on trying to find the birds and estimate their numbers. Mm. So this goes back... A century. Uh, 100 years, yeah. Yeah, 100 years ago. Wow. And what Johnson Neff found was that the birds were nowhere near going extinct. There was probably, you, you have to extrapolate from his numbers. You can't just use his numbers because he didn't look everywhere. Sure. Right? He was, he was a, an army of one. Yeah. Right? So you have to extrapolate to other parts of the state where he wasn't working. But if you do that, you extrapolate an estimate of two to three million birds basically in the early 1930s. So there were, there were still an awful lot of blackbirds. Mm-hmm. So pre-1930, mm-hmm. all, all we can do is, is just guess because you can imagine how many there were if there was this fairly widespread belief that the birds might be going extinct at a time when there were two to three million birds wow. left. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, say 150 years ago, mm-hmm. it was certainly multiple millions of birds, but mm-hmm. whether it was 4 million or 40 million, we'll never know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's impossible. No one, no one was you know, working hard enough to study it. Interesting. And Johnson Neff's work was then sort of um, sits by itself mm-hmm. all the way up until really about the... 1960s is okay. is when Rich DeHaven started working. He's another federal biologist. And he again tried to specialize on tricolored blackbirds because the birds being a colonial species, you can drive and drive and drive and without seeing a single one. And then all of a sudden on the horizon, you see what looks like smoke. Mm-hmm. And that's not smoke that you're looking at. That's a flock of 50,000 or whatever it might be, birds, mm-hmm. blackbirds. Mm-hmm. And the work that Rich DeHaven did showed quite conclusively mm-hmm. that from the 19, early 1930s to the late 1960s or even forward to the 1980s, there had been a massive population decline mm. huge mm-hmm. and that there were no more than at the most a few hundred thousand left so no more than 10 percent mm-hmm. of what johnson neff had estimated just 30 
years or so. 30, prior, to, 30, 30 to 50 years yeah. later, the, the number of birds had dropped by 90%. Mm-hmm. And that's when Bill Hamilton, following um, Rich DeHaven's work, Bill Hamilton became involved with tricolor blackbird monitoring efforts primarily. And then he and uh, Ted Beatty were the originators of this whole statewide survey idea because mm-hmm. up until Hamilton and Beatty's work, people, the biologists who studied the birds, studied the birds through the entire breeding season. Mm. And if you do that, you cannot come up with an estimate of statewide abundance because you're counting the same birds multiple times. Sure. And it, it needs to be a moment in time, not, yeah, inevitably you're going to capture them multiple times. Precisely right. And that's because the birds are known to breed twice. Mm. They breed once. These, these are birds that are in the Central Valley. They breed once in the San Joaquin Valley. Mm-hmm. They finish up or fail, one or the other, mm-hmm. and then they move north and breed again in the Sacramento Valley. Mm-hmm. That's probably 80% of the birds in the in the world do this. Yeah. And if you study the birds throughout the breeding season, mm-hmm. the birds that you're studying in June in Calusa County or Yuba County are the same birds that you were studying in April in Kern County. Mm-hmm. They've just moved. They just moved. Yeah, it's not, not, not new birds, yeah. right? But... If you then sum all of the birds that you studied, you get this totally, you know, almost irrational estimate and mm-hmm. totally biased estimate, biased by the fact that you're double counting mm-hmm. you know, many of the same birds that are breeding in a, in a new location for the second time. So Beating Hamilton came up with the idea of a statewide survey that was conducted over three days, mm-hmm. right? That eliminates the threat, if you will, of double counting. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to try to come up with a three-day interval when the vast majority of the birds were fixed in place Mm -hmm. so they could be counted. And the idea was that since the birds breed twice and you couldn't necessarily assume that all the birds were going to breed twice. Some of them might not. Mm -hmm. So the idea was to try to count them during the first, the original breeding season, Mm -hmm. which usually back in in the day, back in the 1980s or 90s, started around mid-April. It's Mm -hmm. actually, we assume because of global climate change, it's actually been accelerating and moving further back into even late March. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's happening about two weeks to two to three weeks earlier now than it was happening just a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. So the, the structure of the statewide survey is such that you essentially eliminate the threat of, of double-counting birds, and then you harness the power of what is pretty colloquially known as citizen science. You, you get a whole lot of very highly motivated individuals throughout California from San Diego County in the south all the way up to, you know, who knows what county up in, you know, on, on the Oregon border, sure. all the way up. And you get 125 or whatever it might be. That's kind of a typical number. Mm-hmm. People out during that three-day window in mm-hmm. mid-April is mm-hmm. when the statewide survey usually occurs. And you use the same method, statewide survey after statewide survey mm-hmm. after statewide survey, so that the numbers are comparable, mm-hmm. right? So you have people doing 
similar things in different places at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. And you then sum all of those numbers because those numbers ought to now be independent, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't have people that are, you know, counting the birds once in one location and a second time in a different location. They're all counted just that one time in mid-April. And that then effort, the, the statewide survey effort, results in what we believe to be the best estimate that we're ever going to be able to drive for how sure. many birds there are in California. And that number mm-hmm. actually went to the lowest point ever recorded, I believe. It was in a 2008 down to like 160,000 birds. So really not very many compared yeah. to even when Johnson F. was working when he said, again, extrapolating somewhere around two to three million. It mm-hmm. was, you know, so Rich DeHaven was right. Rich DeHaven said that we've got a problem here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that the species is, you know, going down a tube, so to mm-hmm. speak. So the statewide survey, we try to conduct it every three years, mm-hmm. not every year, because you get burnout. People just won't yeah. participate anymore. Right. So we do it every three years to try to keep people, you know, motivated and interested and, out on the landscapes and we have what's called a statewide survey coordinator, meaning somebody's in charge of the overall effort. And for the last three statewide surveys, that's been me. Mm -hmm. Then we utilize what I refer to as local experts. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about birders, birders tend to focus on the counties in which they live. Sure. So people who live in Sacramento County become experts on the birds of Sacramento County. Yeah. So we try to piggyback on that already existing structure. Absolutely. And we take advantage of the fact that we have, again, what I refer to as local experts. Mm-hmm. So we have people in Sacramento County that we've tapped because they already know everything there is to know about where to find the birds mm-hmm. in Sacramento County. Ditto, San Diego County, mm-hmm. Solana County, Yuba County, etc. Yeah. So then we have a statewide survey coordinator county coordinators and then participants and we we defer to the county coordinators Mm -hmm. to identify and to encourage to participate friends and colleagues and whatnot to actually provide the manpower so to speak probably not the right term (laughs) person power (laughs) and to put people on the landscape throughout we, we don't need to worry too much about areas north of Yuba County because the birds don't occur there in mm. mid-April. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're still, we, they're still south-focused. They're, they're still south of there. So we know this because we do survey some areas to the north of, of Yuba County, even in mid-April, only to confirm absence, which we need to do, right? Sure. You, you need to have somebody out on the ground just to, to look and say, yep, they're not here yeah. yet. Yeah. So we... we try to do the entire state, roughly 125 people every three years. And the more recent statewide surveys in 2011, 14, 17, uh, then we had, because of the pandemic, we had a two-year gap. So the next one was in, uh, what was it, 2022 instead of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then the last two statewide surveys have shown a fairly um, significant but relatively gradual increase in, mm-hmm. in the number of birds, which is um, there's there's the potential for there to be other explanations for why the uh, number of birds could be coming up. And mm-hmm. that's because the 
um, the number of sites that we're surveying isn't constant. We're not we're mm-hmm. not looking at the same population of sites. Mm-hmm. The population of sites that we're surveying keeps going up, and it's now just under 900 sites mm-hmm. over a three-day window, which is yeah. unbelievably ambitious and successful. That's an awful lot of sites being mm-hmm. surveyed for a three-day weekend by you know, volunteers. volunteers we're, yeah, that's, we're, not, we're not talking about people that are getting paid to be out there. These yeah, are, that's you know, not, it's not UC Davis descending upon the state. You know? it, is, it is not. <laughs> yeah, that, is not that, is, that is not what it is. So these, these are people that just out of the goodness of their heart, they want to you know, contribute to Tricolor Blackbird you know, monitoring efforts. And the single most important of those efforts is the statewide survey conducted mm-hmm. ideally every three years. But the most recent surveys, the last three, have shown a fairly modest but, but fairly consistent increase in, in the number of birds. And again, it's, it's confounded by some other issues that um, are more of a technical nature than a, you know, um, you know uh, I'll go out and count birds nature because we're, the, the population of, of sites that we're surveying isn't constant. It keeps changing through mm-hmm. time. But it is the best we can do, and it is very encouraging mm-hmm. that the number that had been known to be declining precipitously over several decades is now definitely not declining anymore and definitely appears to be, you know, on, on the rebound coming back up. Great. So there is some thought that part of that is because of fairly recent efforts to conserve what are called silage colonies and the San Joaquin Valley. Mm-hmm. The birds beginning in the 1980s started nesting in very close association with dairies. Mm-hmm. The reason that so many dairies were brought into the picture, so to speak, is because the dairy industry largely moved out of Southern California into the San Joaquin Valley just because of the rapid increase in land values. Mm-hmm. And areas like San Diego County, which used to host tens of thousands of tricolored blackbirds mm. every year, they, they were known to be very abundant in, in uh, San Diego County up until the 1980s. They essentially disappeared, went down to a few thousand birds. And if you talk to the local biologists about why that might have been, mm-hmm. it's because the dairies that were there up until the 1980s moved. And I can say I can speak directly to that because I am a San Diego native. Oh, I wasn't excellent. Bo- I wasn't born at that point, but I can tell you, um, for growing uh, growing up there and knowing that Interstate Eight that goes right through there, it goes through uh, what's known as Mission Valley. I grew up with my dad telling me that Mission Valley used to be a bunch of dairies and a bunch of rangeland. And if you were if you go drive it now, it is definitely not what it once was right now only five or so decades removed that thing is just wall-to-wall apartment complexes and yeah so that's a very interesting point to be made that the birds have long been associated with with agriculture yes yeah indeed and so i think i wanted to to start to transition a little more now into sort of the We've, I think we've done a really good, great job of talking about sort of the numbers and, and you know, the, the history and the context, which is, you know, absolutely critical in, in understanding some of this. But the other really big one I wanted, as we've, we've discussed it a little bit, is this, this interaction between ag and, and the birds. You were starting, so you were starting to get into it a little bit with the, with the silage colonies. And I, and I think the sort of the term that's associated there is this, um, this practice of cooperative conservation. Yes. 
Can you, can you dive a little bit into that? The conflict with the birds occurring on fields of grain that are grown for silage to feed dairy cows mm-hmm. is that the grain gets ripe and ready to be harvested by the farmer mm-hmm. while the baby tricolored blackbirds are still in the nests. Mm. So there's the rub. There's mm-hmm. the conflict. Yeah. And what has been happening in a fairly recent past, the past decade or so, is that there has been an NRCS program, federal program, in the mm-hmm. Department of Ag, NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service, state offices here in Davis. Mm-hmm. And they have provided funding to compensate mm-hmm. farmers who have nesting tricolored blackbirds on their properties. Mm-hmm. And it is about as good as we're ever going to get in terms of the the level of compensation. It's by no means 100%. Mm-hmm. I had a very interesting conversation with a dairyman in Merced County in April of this year mm-hmm. who was very clear with me mm-hmm. in informing me that although the money that they gave him to compensate him for the... the, the the issue here is the delay. Mm-hmm. The farmers need to delay the harvest of the grain until it's way beyond its optimal mm-hmm. harvest date. Mm-hmm. That decreases the value of the crop that he's growing mm-hmm. because the digestibility of the it's it's typically triticale that mm-hmm. that's being grown yeah. it's, it's the grain it's a wheat rye hybrid mm-hmm. and really vigorous incredibly vigorous it's vigorous to the point where tricolored blackbird nests mm-hmm. can be supported by the plants wow. by the triticale plants that's yeah. how vigorous it is thick stuff thick stems yeah and because the farmer can't harvest while the birds are present Mm-hmm. Right, because now it's CESA listed, so that would be a violation of CESA if the farmer were to go in and harvest the field while the birds were there. Mm-hmm. Be a violation of MBTA, also Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Mm-hmm. The NRCS program mm-hmm. compensates the farmer for the decrease in the value of, of the crop mm-hmm. that's being impacted. So there is an effort. Biologists come in, they identify what part of the field is being used by the birds. Mm-hmm. That can't be harvested. Then there is a buffer, which I believe it's only like 50 or 100 feet. It's not very wide. Mm-hmm. Where the where if the farmer wants to come in and pay the harvester to come in and cut all the way around that, they can still do that and just leave the part of the field intact where the birds are present, which is the way it usually happens. Mm-hmm. And then the farmer is um, compensated for the, for the delay and the field is, quote, released back to the farmer after someone who's working with this NRCS program mm-hmm. has confirmed that the young have fledged, mm-hmm. that they've left the nest and left the field, and then a the farmer can come in and finish harvesting. But now the grain in that part of the field that is two to three or four weeks older than the grain that's already been harvested, mm-hmm. it doesn't have that much value. So that's where the compensation comes in. That's where the NRCS, which is taxpayer dollars, that's where the taxpayer dollars come sure. in to compensate the farmer for, um, for not harvesting that 
you know, part of the field on time. Yeah. So there is some, you know, reason to believe that that is contributing, that the, that the fact that all of these so-called silage colonies. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what we've been talking about up until now are ag-bird relations where there's no conflicts. Mm-hmm. There is definitely conflicts where the birds are in silage fields in the mm-hmm. San Joaquin Valley. Mm-hmm. It also occurs at one or two dairies in Riverside County. It occurs at a few places in San Benito County. Mm-hmm. So the, the conflicts haven't been 100% resolved, but they've been largely resolved, probably mm-hmm. 90% resolved. And the, the good news is that it, it helps the farmers to feel better about the fact that the, quote, damn birds have shown up on their fields. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Marshall, the way this works, it is typically the same farmers year after they year. keep getting the same, the birds keep coming back to? They keep coming back to the same fields. And what the relationship is usually that the field that the birds are in is adjacent to the dairy barns. Mm. And the dairy barns provide the grains that have been spilled to be feeding the, the dairy cows when they're into barns to be milked. Mm-hmm. So the birds come in and they steal those grains mm-hmm. from the cows, mm-hmm. but they also fly into the what are called commodity barns where the huge piles of grains are being stored. And they come mm-hmm. in by the thousands and they go in and they eat all the stored grains. I mm-hmm. shouldn't say all. They, yeah. they, they eat probably 8% of the, of the stored grains. So there is a cost, there is an impact mm-hmm. of, of all these birds um, on the farmers and the NRCS program is is designed to at least soften the blow, so to speak. It doesn't. It's not a one to one. You know, sure. they, they don't get 100 percent of what they lost, but they get, I don't know what it might be, 80 percent, 90 percent, something yeah. like that. So it helps the farmer to feel whole, mm-hmm. if you will, that the the farmer keeps having these impacts year after year mm-hmm. because the birds keep showing up because they they like the the physical relationship between mm-hmm. where the nesting substrate is and where the commodity barns or where the dairy milking barns are that, you know, the, the birds have easy access. Unfortunately, lots of times there is an intervening road mm-hmm. in between where the birds are nesting and where the barns are. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a lot of mortality, mm-hmm. especially with the young after they've fledged. Sure. Because they don't fly at all strongly. Mm-hmm. They know nothing about traffic. Mm-hmm. Zero. Mm-hmm. So they're flying across the road, maybe for their first time ever, mm-hmm. following mom or dad, and they're going to feed off of the grains that have been spilled in the dairy barns and whack, yeah. a truck goes by or a car goes by and that's it. They sure. snuff them out. Okay. But there's oftentimes quite severe mortality, especially of the, of the young birds in the first few days after they've left the nest and they're trying to go from the nest to feed in the, in the dairy barns. Sure. Yeah, that's unfortunate to hear. That's that's definitely one of those moments where human and agriculture and then wildlife, that's not a, a perfect marriage and is definitely a little um, opposite to what we've been discussing, which, I mean, I think, right, there's inherently, it's not, it's not all perfect. And, it is you not know, all perfect. And, and the way we were, the way we exist on our landscape, especially here is, um, it, I mean, it is, it is extractive to a it is extractive. And so while I think what, I think the really great part to celebrate here is that, I mean, of course we don't have any of these farmers here actually speaking on, you know, to the, to the success of the program, but I mean, it is a, it is a great example of, 
um, meeting human need and wildlife need, uh, not just for the altruistic, you know, the good of the bird, you know, right. Where you NRCS isn't approaching these farmers and saying, you should just do this because they're a it's a threatened species, you know, please. Cause right. and as, cause and as we know, farmers, ranchers, are, it's not an easy lifestyle and they are not raking in loads of money. So right. A success in that we, there's a recognized conservation need and that we can at least compensate these individuals in addition to, you know, maybe, maybe they do feel a sense of uh, it's good for the birds, but um, it certainly helps. And, and I, I imagine there's, you know, there's a lot of instances where farmers are being asked to do other things, again, just because it's the right thing to do. That's right. Um, so it's, it's certainly a, that a, definitely an attractive point, I think, to this story and, and wanting to, to talk through that. But I think what's also interesting is that tricolors have a really close connection with our, our rangelands. Um, throughout the valley as well, and, and so the, right, these would be our our grasslands and oak woodlands that are uh, the soils not really of great. It's not of great enough quality to to be farmed, and so it's been left to produce what it can, which is grass, which cows uh, can certainly benefit, still benefit from. Right. Um, but then there, so then there's this. Right, none of this is occurring in a vacuum, and so the bird, the tricolored blackbirds, can benefit off of these rangelands as well with the presence of of cattle and other livestock. And I'd love if you could just kind of address, yeah, that that dynamic because it's there's a perfect example of that that is, um, I believe it's both on Vimeo and on YouTube, shot by a good buddy of mine, uh, Don Disjardin, a videographer from Ventura, professional, and he shot birds in San Benito County in Panoche Valley. Mm-hmm. And he demonstrates in his video, which is superb, the mutualism between the cattle, and I've, I've, I've met the landowner, the rancher, real easy to talk to, good guy. Mm-hmm. And he was actually intrigued and, and uh, really happy to learn that when the birds show up in the spring to breed and they start foraging at the feet of his cattle, mm-hmm. that they're doing the cattle some good because the reason that they're literally at the feet of the cattle is because the cattle are pulling up on the grass as they're munching and eating the grass mm-hmm. and they're exposing beetle larvae. Mm-hmm. The beetle larvae are huge and extremely desirable as food for the trichloid blackbirds, both Mm -hmm. to feed the adults themselves and to carry back to the nestlings Mm -hmm. in a nest. The benefit to the cows is that those insect larvae Mm -hmm. eat roots Mm -hmm. and they're eating the roots of the grass that is growing to feed the cows. So by removing those insect larvae, you're actually helping to keep more grass on the range and mm-hmm. keeping the cows healthy. So the mutualism is that the cows disturb the insect larvae and expose them to the foraging birds. The birds then remove that herbivore and it results in less herbivory and more grass being left to feed the cows. So each of the two species benefits. And all of this is shown in a really phenomenal 
video and and not totally facetiously I, I told my buddy Don I said I would like to get permission from the landowner to put GoPro cameras around the necks of the cows uh-huh. because what you would be able to show and, and it, this would actually be just incredibly dramatic mm-hmm. you'd be able to show in intimate detail the 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 video that my buddy shot shows it in in some detail but it's you know he's hundreds of yards away if you had a gopro camera around the neck of the cow you would show on the level of like one cow's head and one tricolor blackbird the cow munching and exposing the beetle larva and then the tricolor blackbird grabbing it and you know flying away to to feed its young which would be just an amazing video sounds like a follow-up effort <laughs> there, there, there needs to be yeah, so, yeah but but that that would be if if i if i knew the um if i knew the owner better I mean, yeah I, I i would never suggest this based upon you know a couple of conversation it would it would sure. have to be something beyond that but um that would that would be an, an amazing video to shoot to actually show the cow eating mm-hmm. and pulling up on the clod of grass exposing the the beetle larvae the tricolor blackbird rushing in and grabbing it and um, that would sort of, you know, close the loop, so to speak, yeah. and, and, and show you in a really macro way exactly, you know, what the relationship is. But these, these, um, these beetle larvae are enormous. They're at least as big as your pinky. They're like yeah, two, wow. in, two inches long, and they're maybe half an inch to three-quarter of an inch, you know, across. They're big, thick, juicy things. So, wow. yeah, you get a yeah. few of those things, and the, the baby tricolors are yeah. quite well-fed. Happy. Yeah. I was thinking maybe we need to... Um we need to reach out to GoPro and have them start an entire uh, environmental initiative. There we go. We'll get a bunch of GoPro there we go. uh, sponsored videos. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm the first to to suggest that we put GoPros on the on the head of a of a cow, but yeah. you know, I don't think there are too many people who want to do it. But I've got a specific <laughs> I, I, idea in mind for why. Like I'm sure we could that. find a few more. Um, in, in, in right, and I, I love that example because I, I I kind of tried to touch on it a little bit in my in the first episode of we've sort of addressed it a little bit so at this point where we live on this altered landscape right the the natural systems uh the natural ecosystems the natural movement of animals it's just it's just not there anymore and so in it's it's sort of it's a little bit bleak to say you know we'll we'll never get back to what it once was but it's also the reality of it i mean it's just I mean, unless I think unless humans go away, um, that that's not changing. And so this dynamic that I, I really want to hone in on is that there's while we can't necessarily recreate or bring back, you know, entire herds of, of native grazing animals. And, you know, uh, what, what we can do is we can at least do a pretty good job of, of recreating it. And that's kind of right. And that's sort of what you're explaining there as far as the um right the the cow i guess in essence is sort of replacing a dynamic that may have existed at some point with say let's say an elk or or uh or whatever grazing you know ungulate was making moving its way through the central valley is that sound is that characterization sound about right the the crux of the issue marshall is the threats that are posed by the continuing pressure to build, build, build in California. And there are, as we sit here today, condos and houses being built 
in Yuba County that are being built on areas that tricolored blackbirds used to forage on. Mm. The conflict that has arisen hundreds of times over the decades is that too many times efforts are made to conserve nesting substrate. Mm. Nothing is done to conserve the surrounding foraging substrates. Mm -hmm. So where the nesting substrates are conserved, but the foraging substrates are built over, Mm -hmm. either through urbanization or or ag, either one. It could be vineyards. There's vineyards all over San Luis Obispo County and all over western Yolo County, all over the place where Mm -hmm. there used to be tricolors. Mm -hmm. There can't be tricolors anymore because they have nothing to eat. Mm -hmm. They have nowhere to forage. Mm -hmm. So efforts that are made to conserve tricolored blackbirds currently and in the future have to include both pieces. Mm -hmm. They have to include both the nesting substrates, which is usually pretty easy to do because just, you know, cattails and, and, and flooded willows and Himalayan blackberries along a canal, mm-hmm. that's nirvana for, for nesting tricolor blackbirds. They, mm-hmm. they look at that and they say, perfect. Yeah. Right? I mean, compare it to the alternative, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's, it, it looks great compared to essentially nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is just so hugely man-modified mm-hmm. that there's very little nesting substrate. But if you if you put a canal, so there's your source of water for drinking and bathing, mm-hmm. and then on the sides of that canal, we're talking many examples of this locally in Yuba County, Yolo County, Sacramento County. Mm-hmm. In this region where we're sitting right now, this is a very common situation with tricolor blackbirds. If you put adjacent to that canal organic rice, mm-hmm. Now you've got everything Mm -hmm. because the birds can forage just like shorebirds. One of the things we haven't mentioned about tricolored blackbirds yet is that they forage in more ways, more different ways than any other bird in in North Mm. America. On the the coast, when there are uh, breakout years of uh, oak moths, the caterpillars of those moths become the number one prey item for nesting tricolored blackbirds. So they go Mm. up and forage like warblers into the boughs of the coast live oak trees. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not foraging on the ground at all. They're foraging up in trees like a warbler would. Mm-hmm. I've seen them forage on hatching aquatic insects up above ponds, mm. just like a swallow would. Mm-hmm. They also forage like shorebirds in rice. Wow. Exactly like a shorebird. They stick their head underwater. I've, I've, I've banded many thousands of these birds, and I pick them up after they've been foraging in rice, and they've got dried mud <laughs> on, on their head feathers. Well, how, where'd the mud come from? Because they were sticking their, their heads under the water into the mud looking for insect larvae in the rice. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they forage, as we've mentioned, in shrublands and in short, short grass prairies and, mm-hmm. and remnant prairies. And, and that's sort of like their... Um, they're quintessential. That's like their native, you know, foraging habitat. But these birds are doing literally everything possible to survive. Yeah, they sound it's they, inc- incredibly got, adaptable. Yeah, exactly right. They 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 have a a a, a toolkit mm-hmm. that any other North American bird species would envy mm. <laughs> because they they nest in all kinds of vegetation that didn't even exist a hundred years ago. It wasn't even here, mm-hmm. right? And they forage in a whole range of different ways that you think a tricolored blackbird does that. Mm-hmm. And I've had people that I took out onto the field with me when I've done my field work, and they're seeing birds forage in rice paddies mm-hmm. by the thousands. 
and they stick their heads literally underwater. That the head disappears just like a shorebird head would, and up comes you know the head with a with an insect larvae in it. Wow! And if you've never seen that before, if everything up until that day the birds are on uplands mm -hmm. and they're they're foraging in rangelands, you think that's bizarre, but it's actually not bizarre. That's as common as it gets in the Sacramento Valley. Mm -hmm. In the San Joaquin Valley, you never see it. You virtually never see it. They're, they're, they're not in rice because there's no rice being grown down there. They're, they're sometimes in the margins of ponds, especially in national wildlife refuges. Mm -hmm. They're doing the same thing. They're in the mud and they're looking for you know, insect larvae. But up here, most of the foraging habitat consists of rice either organically grown or rice where no insecticides are used. Mm -hmm. there, there's been... A lot of rice farmers that I've talked to that even though the rice they grow is not organic, they learned decades ago, back in the 1980s, if you compare the yield mm -hmm. of the rice in the paddies where they're using insecticides to that where no insecticides are being used, the yield is the same. Wow. And as we've already discussed, farmers are conservative and they don't want to waste money, mm -hmm. right? They're yeah. working hard for the money that they've got. So they don't want to waste money on insecticides if they're not going to get a benefit from the use of the insecticides. Sure. So the rice doesn't need to be grown organically, but it has to be grown without the use of insecticides. And that's what increases the insect larvae, you know, populations that the tricolored blackbirds then you mm -hmm. know, utilize. Which, and but, I think a thing to stress too, is that if in, that'll probably be, probably be a future episode too, is obviously rice fields have benefit, you know, a number of, of species as well, right? Correct. Yeah. So the tricolors are not the only birds in there, but of course there is a benefit to the rice farmers because the insect larvae mm -hmm. that are being removed by the foraging tricolored blackbirds are herbivores, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So by removing those herbivores, there's more rice that's that's being grown. Mm -hmm. So there is this ecosystem service that we talked about earlier mm -hmm. that's being performed by the presence of the tricolored blackbirds. Now, they're only there for a few weeks out of the year, mm -hmm. but when there's 20,000 of them mm -hmm. and they're all eating insect larvae and rice, that can be a pretty good you know, yeah. boost yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to the bottom line for the rice farmer. Yeah. So the rice farmers, when you talk to them, when you, and you, you, know, you get a little bit of a relationship developed and you know, they, they trust you and... Um, they have their own questions about, you know, what the birds eating and, you know, what are they doing on my property? And you explain to them that they're actually removing a lot of the little micro herbivores that are in your mm -hmm. rice paddies. They're actually happy that the, that the tricolors are there. Yeah. Okay. But the, the relations between the birds and the, uh, rice farmers is a very different relation than the birds and the dairymen in mm -hmm. the San Joaquin Valley, because in the San Joaquin Valley, there is a known conflict. Mm -hmm. We've already discussed yep. that. In the Sacramento Valley, there is no conflict. Yeah, there's so, a, mostly a benefit. There's mostly a benefit, yeah. exactly. So part of the benefit is just that the, 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 the property owners just like the idea that they're doing something for wildlife. That, mm -hmm. that makes them happy, makes mm -hmm. them feel good about owning the property. Mm -hmm. But then when they learn that there might be an economic benefit, mm -hmm. all, all the better. Well, it just makes the deal sweeter. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, really great. You know, and I, and I think, yeah, it's, to sort of maybe bookend that it's, you had mentioned um, how it's, the focus has been on protecting nesting substrate, which, you know, in common terms would be it's nesting sites, places where they actually are going to lay their eggs without as much focus on uh, where they're getting their food, which again, it kind of makes sense. There's no point in having a house if you can't get food in, from that anywhere near that house. Exactly right. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think, 
again, being in our landscape here in the Central Valley where there's, I mean, there is a huge, there's a housing shortage, there's a housing need, and it's this kind of interesting, kind of scary, concerning aspect going on here where if we, we look at our, our rangelands, our, our, our grasslands, our, our kind of sub-quality soils from a productive standpoint as far as making food for people, right? Those are the lands that are being lost and having houses built on. And um, it's, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it were, there, there's a moment here. And, uh, you know, it seems like uh, there's starting to be a little bit more, I think there's a, a lot of recognition now going into the benefit of those, those rangelands and grasslands. And it's certainly a topic I hope to explore a lot more as well, because, right, it's huge in carbon sequestration as well, right? You know, again, ecosystem services, I think we're at this moment in time where, you know, the science is really backing up a lot of other benefits we have from keeping lands, you know, at least uh, not paved over, right? There, there's still, there's tons to to benefit from for both wildlife and, and humans. And so, you know, it's just... This message that I'm trying to work on, I'm trying to get out there. The, the, the areas that the birds are utilizing here in the Sacramento Valley, they're not set aside specifically for wildlife, mm -hmm. but the landowners are aware mm -hmm. that by leaving, you know, for example, here locally along Willow Slough, by leaving, you know, whatever it might be, a 100 foot or whatever, um, strip of uh, native vegetation, mm -hmm. um, valley oaks and cottonwoods and whatnot, um, that wildlife utilizes that. Mm -hmm. So there is no desire on the part of the landowners to literally cut down every tree mm -hmm. and cut down every shrub mm -hmm. and to put rice or whatever the crop is that you're growing on every square inch. Mm -hmm. v virtually everybody who has property up here understands that by leaving you know remnants of native vegetation that they're mm -hmm. that they're benefiting wildlife what excites them is when somebody comes along and tells them exactly what they're doing mm -hmm. they, they just have a sense right that's mm -hmm. all it is a sense that they're doing something good mm -hmm. but then somebody shows up and actually talks to him about exactly you know what's going on and how this species is now listed under CISA and just by doing what they're doing, mm -hmm. they don't have to change anything. We're talking mm -hmm. Sacramento Valley now. Mm -hmm. They don't have to. They don't have to change anything. They just have to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. The one thing, Marshall, that we haven't talked about yet is the role that National Wildlife Refuges are playing, mm -hmm. because there are huge numbers of birds mm -hmm. here in the Sacramento Valley, especially in Calusa County, that have nested in. Well. Ever, ever since the National Wildlife Refuges have been there. Mm -hmm. And there is a really excellent example of ecosystem restoration at Calusa National Wildlife Refuge, mm -hmm. where there was a property that the rice farmer wanted to sell. Mm -hmm. So he got in touch with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service real estate person, and they came to terms over what the rice farmer wanted for the property. Mm -hmm. So it became part of Calusa National Wildlife Refuge instead of being private rice. Sure, And the... U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Wildlife Refuge System, immediately restored that from rice into a great big wetland, primarily for the giant garter snake. Mm. But the conditions that are required for breeding and just for living by the giant garter snake mm -hmm. are identical. 
<laughs> to the conditions that are used by tricolored blackbirds and a lot of other wetland-dependent species. Mm -hmm. So least bitterns, for example, are birds that are really, really hard to come by by most people. Most birders, that's called a nemesis bird. Mm -hmm. You work and work and work for years. You never see a least bittern. Mm -hmm. At Clusa National Weather Refuge, the site that's been um, called Tract 27, T27, that was the site that was restored for the giant garter snake. But mm -hmm. there's not only tricolored blackbirds by the thousands that nest up there every year, mm -hmm. but there's also giant garter snakes. There's also least bitterns. There's also... You know, who, who knows, a host of other, you know, oh. wetland-dependent wetland species that are all benefiting yeah. from restoration. So the the role of National Wildlife Refuges in the Sacramento Valley is immense. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's critical. And I don't think there's really a way to overstate the importance of the National Wildlife Refuges in the future because so many of the areas that are currently private ranches, I'll give you a specific example, a dairy in Yuba County mm -hmm. stopped being a dairy mm -hmm. last year. 2022, they sold all their cows off. Mm -hmm. So now the property that they have is going from what is very attractive to tricolor backbirds. It's being planted to walnuts. Mm -hmm. That has That's no potential no to support tricolor yeah. blackbirds. So that is a very local and a very, for me personally, threatening mm -hmm. example because I've known the owner for years, mm -hmm. really, really nice people, fabulous people. Um, they like the birds. Mm -hmm. they, they've, they've known that they come in and they eat the, the grains that had been spilled for the dairy cows. No more dairy cows. Mm -hmm. So I went up there this year and there were no birds coming into the barns. The barns are still there, but the cows are gone, so there's nothing for the birds to eat. Mm -hmm. There used to be three tricolored blackbird colonies within, certainly within a mile, maybe within a half a mile of mm -hmm. this dairy. Mm -hmm. This year there was one, mm -hmm. and the birds were not flying to the dairy to forage. They were going to the adjacent um, prairies that are... Uh, you know, grazing for, for cattle that mm -hmm. are kept up there. And cattle and tricolor blackbirds get along mm -hmm. perfectly. I mean, that, yeah. that's a really, really good yeah. pairing. And that conversion mm -hmm. from what used to be a dairy to now is transitioning into walnuts mm -hmm. is a perfect example of a major, major threat to the species because up until 2022, mm -hmm. I could go up there and expect to see a minimum of three tricolored blackbird colonies within, at the most, a mile, maybe half a mile of that site, mm -hmm. that dairy. And now I can't expect any, any more than one to be active and the other two have no birds at all. Wow. So the question would be, have those birds just shut down? Do they just not breed anymore? Because mm -hmm. the places that they used to breed have been lost. Or have they simply shifted some of the site and they're breeding someplace else? Mm -hmm. I've not been able to find them. So if they've shifted someplace else, it's not known to any anybody who's working with the birds where they, where they might have gone. Wow. So that's an open question. Interesting. If the answer to the question is they've simply given up on breeding, that's a major threat. Because yep. now you've just eliminated the second breeding. Those birds that are up there, most of them are second-time breeders. Mm -hmm. But if they're not going to breed two times, they're only going to breed once. You get it's an idea the half, what the, half the population of, trajectory is. Yeah, that's half half the number of exactly of, uh, offspring that season. So we have major land conversions. There was a site in Merced County, the Crane Ranch, 
where the first year that I worked on the ranch was, I believe, 2008, and there were 50,000 birds on a crane ranch, mm -hmm. totally unbeknownst to anybody who worked with tricolored blackbirds. That ranch is now partly almonds and partly vineyards. There are no tricolored blackbirds on that ranch anymore. There used to be a dairy across the street. That dairy is defunct. It's no longer there. Mm -hmm. Tricolored blackbirds are gone. They're not coming back, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing there for them. So if you, if, you, if you add this up enough, and I've seen it since I've been working with the birds for 19 years, I've seen many examples of this. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you add this up over a long enough period of time, and we've already talked about you know, growth, 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 mm -hmm. unless you somehow eliminate or at least reduce the development pressure mm -hmm. and you stop the houses from being built on you know, lands that used to be prime foraging habitats for tricolored blackbirds, or you stop the conversions of prairies and grasslands to nut orchards, mm -hmm. the birds don't really have a chance. Yeah. And a lot of the dairies in the San Joaquin Valley are no longer dairies. A mm -hmm. lot of them are growing pistachios mm -hmm. because that's sort of like the big... They're going where the money is. They go yeah. where the money is. And we've already mentioned how difficult it is as a, as a lifestyle, yeah. right, to, 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 to be a dairyman. And a lot of people just would prefer, you know, they, they've probably been dairymen for decades and mm -hmm. they know, you know, their, their bodies are, you know, kind of wearing out. Yep. And they're saying, you know, it might be a little bit easier if I were just to, you know, tree, watch tree, the trees, trees grow. Don't, trees don't need to be milked twice a day. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's... Um, you know, gosh, right. Being working in land trust and, and now working uh, much more directly in in acquisitions myself. You know, I think, you know, hopefully with sort of yeah, just this, uh, we've got the thirty by thirty initiative going on throughout the state, and it seems like a really good moment. Why I want to do this is because folks like me should be talking to people, to biologists like you, to be able to go in and hone in and focus on on acquisition efforts for these purposes. Of course, there are lots of wildlife that need help and need habitat exactly protected. Right. Exactly. Um, right. But I think that's the but that's kind of the beauty of nonprofit land trusts is when there is a really critical project, a, a, a moment that needs, you know, their attention and, and funding. Um, they have the ability. You know, it sounds it's unfortunate. Of course, there's instances where it's just it just doesn't work. But um, there is a, a, a great partnership there to be able to try and save these lands and it's, it's land trusts who are going to do it. Agreed. Yeah. Let me make one hugely important point. Okay. In the future, it's not going to be sufficient to simply set aside land. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to bring in experts like me mm -hmm. and you're going to have to ask them which lands mm -hmm. should be set aside. Mm -hmm. These birds are colonial breeders. Mm -hmm. They're not Swainson's hawks. Mm -hmm. And if you set aside land, but it's not the right land, mm -hmm. and the birds are not present, yep. you haven't done the species any good. Mm -hmm. So I recently gave a presentation to a group called LA Birders, okay. Los Angeles. Sure. LA Birders. And the focus of my talk was on the importance of targeted mm 
mm-hmm. strategic land management and land conservation. So everything that you just said about mm-hmm. the importance of these NGOs, mm-hmm. spot on, mm-hmm. super important in the future. But where you're talking about specifically tricolored blackbird conservation, mm-hmm. There are specific properties that, if they go by the wayside, mm-hmm. this species in a is in a world of hurt. Okay. I I see no real long term hope mm-hmm. if we're going to develop all of the Sacramento Valley, mm-hmm. with the exception of National Wildlife Refuges, and just rely upon this NRCS program to compensate the dairymen in. in the San Joaquin Valley. Mm-hmm. There are so many conflicts down there and there are so many property owners that are just getting out of the dairy business because they're just tired of it and it's just too much work and the economics just don't work for them anymore mm-hmm. that we can't just rely upon things taking their natural course. The, the sure. species will go extinct if we do that. Mm-hmm. And we need to we're already past the point in in Southern California. I gave I gave an example because I was I was talking to Ellie Birders. I mm-hmm. gave the example of Los Angeles County because mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time down there. I know landowners and I know some of the people who are doing the monitoring work for tricolored blackbirds. And there are examples mm-hmm. of places that we can conserve, but we're kind of behind the curve a little bit here. Mm. We're, we're down to 6,000 birds throughout Southern California, mm-hmm. right? Six counties, 6,000 birds. Yeah. That's not, not doing very good. Yeah. So the point that I want to make as emphatically as I possibly can is it's simply not going to be sufficient to set aside land for the species. It's mm-hmm. going to have to be land that has a history of use, mm-hmm. history of occupation, and we're not talking about in the 1960s and 1980s. We're talking about like this year. Mm-hmm. And there is a massive role to be played by places like the Conaway Ranch, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because they love the birds. Mm-hmm. They don't have any conflict with the birds being there. So private property will, will definitely have a, an enormous role, role to play. Yeah. And, and you, you can even cite the Conaway Ranch as perfect example of effective conservation that mm-hmm. that is one of those strategic choices mm-hmm. right that's mm-hmm. that's a site that i or anybody else who has experience with the birds there would tell you we have to keep the kind of ranch mm-hmm. as as it's been for the last x decades right mm-hmm. that that's a perfect doesn't have to be a national wildlife refuge it, sure. it, it can be private property but it has to be specific properties mm-hmm. and the loss of the dairy that i mentioned up in yuba county mm-hmm. is huge mm-hmm. That's a huge loss. The fact yeah. that that's going to walnuts, yeah, that that that's tough because yeah. I've been I've been working with those people, well, maybe fifteen years or something like that. So I've I've seen the benefits to the birds, and now the benefit as a result of the dairy being, you know, defunct, and mm-hmm. and now it's it's going to be nut trees. All those benefits have been removed, and and now the number of birds in that in that whole region is down to what a quarter of what it mm-hmm. what it was just. Two years ago, yeah. Well. So, conservation efforts in the future have to be very well thought out mm-hmm. and very, very targeted. Mm-hmm. If you have li- linear strips of habitat, you can benefit a whole host of species of wildlife 
not including tricolored blackbirds. So if the focus is going to be on tricolored blackbird conservation, you have to be very, very careful about where you're going to make your investments. Hmm. Very good. Well, um, I think that's a good spot to, so to sort of wrap it up. But before we end, I have a series of lightning round questions for you to light to end on a light and a lightning uh, round. Lightning round on, on a light note. Um, these are uh, one sentence responses. Okay, I'll try. So, what's your favorite bird that's not a tricolored blackbird, and why? We may have already answered this. I have answered that for sure. <laughs> so, am I, am I correct in assuming the peregrine falcon is, is number correct. two? You're correct in assuming it's the peregrine falcon. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, what's your favorite reptile slash amphibian and why? Well, I like a number of the different amphibians. Um, I think personally, it might have to be the California newt because okay. I used to go up into Cache Creek with my daughter when she was growing up. She was very, very young in February. Mm-hmm. of each year and we would play with California newts when they're breeding in yeah. Cache Creek. So that's perfect answer. Yeah. Great. I'm going to have to say that. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite mammal and why? <laughs> Lightning. Come on. I, I have a lot of experience in Greenland and when I was doing field work with peregrines in Greenland, I saw a lot of musk oxen. Oh, wow. And musk oxen are awfully cool mammals so if i had to choose one it might be muskox i love that answer that's great um what is your favorite underappreciated open space or preserved land and why open space I guess what I mean is... Could it be so, private property or does it have to be... Um, I'd say something that the public could experience. Well, locally, yeah. there's one called the North Regional Pond here in Yolo County, uh-huh. which is just a couple of miles, not even a couple of miles, less than a couple of miles, maybe a fraction of a mile east of Woodland, of mm-hmm. the city of Woodland. And there is just in the past few weeks, um, word that the WCB has funded a contract that I'm involved with mm-hmm. to develop the, um, actually do a lot of earth moving and develop that into much more of a both wildlife conservation area mm-hmm. and education, outdoor mm-hmm. education yeah. area. So kids from the Sacramento area and Woodland and Davis can go up and actually see, you know, wildlife conservation in, in action. Very cool. So locally, that would that would be my great. That's my, I did, my favorite. I didn't know about that one. That's very exciting to hear. Um, and I think in the last one, we'll ask. Maybe we got into it a little bit, but uh, hope you know. I hope trying to wrap this up ended on a, on a positive note. Is in what or where do you find hope? In terms of what we've been talking about today, I'd say the greatest hope is in the love of the landowners for the resources that they protect and the knowledge that they have that those resources are being utilized by native California vertebrates like mm-hmm. Swainson's hawks or like giant garter snakes or like tricolored blackbirds. Mm-hmm. And as long as we have what you might call sympathetic landowners, mm-hmm. there's hope because 
the probability that we can conserve this species long term mm -hmm. on public property is zero. Mm. Species has no chance. Yeah. As much as I respect the efforts of the National Wildlife Refuge system, it is insufficient to keep trying to simply not enough. The landscape. We, we need both. We need both. But there is hope in knowing that these people that still own these ranches that have been, you know, in the families for generations mm -hmm. are devoted. They're, yeah. they're devoted not only to the ranch as it is to, in the case of the Conway Ranch, to provide some of the world's highest quality rice, mm -hmm. but they also have some of the world's happiest Swainson's hawks and tricolored blackbirds and giant garter snakes and great horned owls and you name it. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, who knows? I don't think the, the species list has ever been assembled for the Conway Ranch, which is probably a couple hundred. That's great. And I think that's a, that's a great ending to it. And I hope to eventually be able to, you know, for people who are willing to be able to tell those, those stories of those, those specific examples, right? Conway Ranch and beyond. So, um, so with that, Bob, you know, thank you so much. We've, we, I think uh, this is definitely, we'll call for a follow-up as well. I hope we so. We can even get more into it. And so, uh, again, thank you for your time. And Well, I thank you, Marshall, but I also thank all the landowners throughout California that have invited me onto their properties and have been unbelievably gracious, not so much in giving of their time, but just in, in allowing, you know, unfettered access and let me do my work. So I want to give them a shout-out that, you know, they, they deserve all the all the credit in the world, not only providing the resources, but providing access for people like me to, to study them. Great. Well, there you go. Thank you. Hey, guys, this is Marshall. I appreciate you sticking with me to the end and hope that this episode, along with others to follow, may serve as a conversation starter. If you liked what you heard here and would like to hear more, it would mean the world if you could leave a positive review. This helps get the word out and brings more people into the conversation. Thanks and hope to see you at the next episode.